everybody. This is Keith Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast once again, and I am in this beautiful place that belongs to Bruce Bouton. How's it going, Bruce? Hey, Keith. How you doing? You man? doing okay? It's been a while. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, Bruce Bouton, for those that don't know, is one of the, he is like the quintessential steel player in Nashville. Every record you've ever heard, um, especially like, you know, Ricky Skaggs and early in the 80s and all that. God, you've been doing this for so long. Steel guitar. Well, I got lucky. I got I moved here in '78, uh, and um, right before I moved here, I'd come down here with the late great Bucky Baxter, who was a steel player. He was my bad brother from Virginia, and we came down here to take lessons from Paul Franklin and um, Doug Jernigan. They were giving lessons for ten dollars an hour. Wow! And Paul was already a you know he was a child prodigy, and just just you know among steel players, everybody knew he was the fastest guy around. And also, right, we, yeah. we drove down, and I knew one guy in Nashville, a guy named Sam Lorber, and uh, he was a songwriter. And I called Sam up, and he said, "Hey, I'm having a barbecue tonight, and there's this English guitar player coming into town." And um, so I came over, and that's where I met Ray Flack, right. legendary guitar player, and. I ended up moving down about six months later and actually lived in a rooming house um, over near Belmont, um, and Ray was one of the roommates. Yeah. And uh, Ray Flack. Now, how how old were you then? What, uh, when was this? I think I was late seventies, right? I think I was twenty four. Twenty four. Okay. Yeah, I was born in fifty four, so uh, seventy eight. Wow. My goodness, time flies, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so back then, steel guitar would have been all over country music. I mean, it was like you no. heard it on just about everything, didn't you? No, back then there wasn't. Steel guitar was weird. Steel guitar was it was it was that urban cowboy, Janie Fricky. A lot of fiddle, you know, kind of, not even fiddle. I mean, really? it was real. DX7 had been discovered, and you know, Sonny Garrish was doing all the work because he 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 was so brilliant. He bought a chorus unit and. Uh, modified it and he would go in and he would he figured out a way to stay out of the way but still have a steel guitar in there and uh so when i got when ray flack did a session with uh rodney crowell one day and ricky skaggs was on the session ricky was still working with emmy lou and he told ray said man i just got a record deal on cbs uh i want to start a band i'd like you to play guitar and do you know any steel players and so uh ray told him about me so Anyway, I sort of made every opportunity. I was working with Lacey J. Dalton at the time. I made every opportunity to meet Skaggs whenever we shared a bill somewhere. And he finally came over to my house and auditioned me, just he and I, acoustic guitar. And I almost didn't join the band. Really? Because it, he was so country. Ricky I mean, Skaggs? Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, singing all these old Flat and Scruggs songs and, and that high country tender voice and I'd, I'd say it is a term of endearment but it was uh, it was it was high lonesome hillbilly singing yeah and I I said man can I think about it overnight and it's I'm amazed that Ricky just said well if you got to think about it never mind but he said sure call me in the morning <laughs> and I called Steve Fischel who would who was playing with Emmy Lou at the time and Emmy said dude you better call him back and tell him you want that job he said that's going to be a great band and I just finished working with Ricky for the past year in Emmy Lou's band and he's the best musician I've ever met and so I called him the next day and and uh, said hey yeah I'd love to join your band he said well Bruce that's great uh and I said can I play on your that record? That sounds just like him when you just, you just yeah. did that just then. Well, yeah, I've worked with him for five years. And, uh, <laughs> but I asked him, I had the, I, I don't know how I got the guts to do it, but I said, can I play on your record? 
and I'd never played on a record in my life. And two weeks later, I cut my first number one record. Is that right? Yeah, wow. it was. A, it was just a gift. Asking, you don't ever be afraid to ask, right? Well, it's yeah, a good lesson. Just, the universe was looking out for me, and and uh, and I went on and 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 played with them and toured with them for four or five years. Wow, played on, you know. Now, a back bunch of then, hits. what you did that session? What were sessions like back then? I mean, they had to be completely different from the way they are today. You know, you've got click tracks and drummers and uh, all these a whole room full of guys well, you know they didn't have click tracks yeah but right. we just everybody's in the room um my favorite part of it was joe osborne the legendary joe osborne who played bass yeah. with the wrecking crew in la and everything wow. he was he was uh on bass and i had just read a guitar uh player interview with him um or a player interview with Steve Stills where he was talking about Joe Osborne. He said, Joe Osborne hadn't changed his strings since 1959. Oh my God. And, um, and, um, and so I thought, well, I know a little bit about George. So I walked up to Joe and he was, he's, he was, he was always kind of, you know, he, he wasn't a big smiling guy. I mean, he's kind of, you kind of looked at him, he's a little intimidating, but I walked up to him and said, hi, I'm Bruce. I'm playing steel. And he says, Hey, good to meet you. And I said, I hear you haven't changed your strings since 1959. He goes, he went, yeah, I had to change one of them the other day. I broke one of the sons of guns. I mean, he's, uh, the, the word he used was yeah. a little bit different, but I mean, I was, I've never forgotten that. I mean, oh, wow. he literally had had those, those strings on for 21 years. I wonder what record he broke the string on. That would have been like the... the that would have been some good trivia. But, you like, know, Ricky had, uh, I, I don't know, man, but I know <laughs> that Ricky, when after we cut that first album and he put the band together and had Jesse Chambers playing bass, he insisted that Jesse get a jazz bass and get LaBella Flatwounds and play with a pick. And Joe had, a, Joe played different bass alterations, you know. Yeah, um, right. When, when he played, he played a whole different style of bass. And, but it was cool, man. It was a great experience. Um I didn't get to play on the whole second album. Uh, they, he had Lloyd Green and Weldon Myrick on some of the stuff. I played on yeah. Highway 40 Blues. And oh, that's Broke my favorite. And, that is absolutely my favorite. But Lloyd played an amazing solo on a song called Nothing Can Hurt You. But I remember I was, you know, I was a kid. I was green. I was devastated. You know, I went up to Ricky. I said, how come, how come I'm not playing on the whole record? And he was like, well, Bruce... I've got a record deal and I've dreamed all my life of working with Lloyd Green and Weldon Myrick and you know you know yeah. it's my record I'm going to hire some and and they yeah. were obviously they were both geniuses I was a beginning yeah. player but it was a it was a good lesson yeah right um and I got off the road uh after the live in London record I got home we got we got back from uh England and we were up in Ohio and Ricky called me in the back and said Bruce I'm going to have to let you go and I said, uh, well, I was thinking of letting you go. And he said, yeah, it's time. And it was time. And I got back to town and I thought, boy, I'm going to, I'm just, people are going to want me for sessions. Yeah. And right. I, I, nobody cared. Oh, wow. Your phone, what? You didn't know what lit up it, your no, phone? No, like and I had, to, I had to go back out on the road. <laughs> so I went out with Mel Tillis for a year. Oh, wow. But that was fun. But, yeah, it was great. Mel was incredible. I mean, we became really good friends. That was a year that neither one of us were drinking. And so we'd sit up in the front of the bus every night and smoke weed. And <laughs> and I'd hear these amazing stories from wow, Mel. I, Mel. I mean, I mean, what a what an incredible man. Um, 
and you know, people don't realize that he was before he ever became an artist, he was a legendary songwriter. Yeah. You know, he wrote Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town. Yeah, wow. He wrote he wrote uh I Ain't Never for Webb Pierce and he wrote Honky Tonk Song and he wrote um now I'm not sure he wrote Honky Tonk Song, let me take that back, but he wrote Detroit City wow. for Dean Martin. And I I talked to him about these songs and I remember one time I said, Well, tell me about Ruby, what happened? And and Mel stuttered and he said he said, uh, well, I, I, I was dr- driving home from uh, from work I, I, over at Cedarwood, and I, I lived in D- 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 Donaldson. There were no highways back then, so you had to take Lebanon Road. And he said, I was driving down Lebanon Road, and that song just came to me, and I wrote it. By the time I got home, I had it written. And I played it for D- Doris, that was my wife, and she looked at me and she said, Melvin, don't you ever play that song for anybody? That's the most m- m- morbid thing I've ever heard. <laughs> And of course, Kenny Rogers cut it. And, oh and, my God! Uh, yeah, you know, and the rest is history. But um, oh my goodness! Yeah, it was um, it was interesting. Well, I remember when I had talked to you before um, a few years ago. We had a conversation. You said you started out as a drummer, didn't you? Like, didn't you start out as a drummer? I was a drum owner. Um, a drum owner. <laughs> I never got. I, I had a nice set of old Ludwigs, which I wish I still had. And then I got a set of Rogers. Um, but I, I played in my basement and I, you know, I had a very, a pretty troubled adolescent time, you know, and, and I just didn't, um, you know, I probably drank too much and too many drugs and everything. And, and, uh, I didn't really concentrate on playing drums, but I had a really good, I had, uh, I got really lucky when I was a junior in high school and I got into a very exclusive vocal group, a madrigal group, choir group, and it kind of, I think it saved my life, wow. you know. Um, we had a teacher, we had a, a, a choir teacher up in um, um, uh, Virginia, and he'd, he'd, won, he'd studied with Natalie Boulanger, who was knew Stravinsky and taught Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein composition, and he, he won first place in composition over in France and came back to the States and couldn't get a gig. Really, uh, he couldn't. You know, he couldn't get it. There was there were no operas or there were no you know universities that wanted to hire him at the time. So he went back to his alma mater, which was my high school. Now, now where are you from? Where do you Vienna, from? Vienna Virginia, up Vienna, here, Virginia. right outside of D.C. Okay. And this shows how different education is. Uh, but back, he went to the school board and the principal. And he said, "Look, I would like to put together a world class choir and vo- and madrigal group." Um, but I want to be able to have them for two hours every day. And basically, the school board approved it and everything, and we got in this choir, and we'd show up at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we would sing from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock every day. And then we were so good, and we'd have sectionals too, you know, rehearsals mm-hmm. all the time and everything. We were so good that all the composers, local composers and on the composers on the East Coast and stuff would write for us. Uh, we, we would premiere their work, so we got to... You know, Kennedy Center, the, the worked with the National Symphony. We did all these things. and But the thing was, we all loved the Beatles, you know, right, yeah. all the guys. And we started this little band, and we did everything, vocal stuff that we liked. We'd do like Beatles, and we'd do Beach Boys, and we did Neil Young, and we did... But as you know. a vocal group, right? As, well, as no, we had a band. System. Everybody played, but I didn't play. I was, a, I was one of the lead singers. And... Um, I didn't play guitar, but I started playing guitar. And then um, 
I decided after I graduated from high school to move to Richmond, Virginia. I moved, I moved in with some musicians down there. and uh, This would just, have been about the early 70s or something? This would have been 72 or 70, 73. Right. 73? And I was playing um, guitar, and my one of my roommates said, man, you like that sound of bending strings, because I was trying to listen to Clarence White, and I liked the Burrito Brothers and the Eagles and all those bands. He said, Why, there's a guy down the street who's got a pedal steel guitar for sale. Why don't you... Uh, since you like to bend strings, I might as well yeah, get and, something. Yeah, and I almost said, man, I'm too old to play steel guitar. I was 19. When you're 19, <laughs> you know, old. your life is oh, yeah. almost over. And oh, I, my gosh. And, and so I uh, um, I uh, walked into a music store that afternoon, and this was another universe God thing that happened. Um, there was a guitar player magazine sitting on the thing. I was buying some picks, and Pete Drake, the legendary Pete Drake, was on the cover. And I opened it up to the interview, I said, that's odd. I was just talking about steel. And he said, what made you play st steel guitar? And he said, well, I was 19 years old and I was driving a bread truck in Georgia and I figured there's a better way to make a living and now I make over $100,000 a year. <laughs> and I, it was a sign. Yeah. And I called my mother and I said, mom, I need you to help me. I need you to sign for a loan for me. And I bought a steel guitar. Wow, I took a leap of faith. and But... What was also crazy is that in, I was in Richmond, Virginia at the time. Over on the south side, across the river, there was a music store called Metro Music, and it was owned by a steel player. Really? So all the steel players hung out over there, and I was the hippie kid, so I became their science experiment. Okay. <laughs> so they all showed me stuff. Wow. And then they introduced me. They got me to a jam session one time, and the, le the legendary Buddy Charlton was there, who'd played with Ernest Tubb for 20 years, and... And Buddy had moved back to Virginia and was giving lessons. Wow. So I started taking lessons from him and joined a college band in Richmond and played in bands in D.C. and then yeah. finally moved here in 78. Now, how what how much different is, I mean, obviously the pedal steel is, is a whole different animal, but there's also a, the steel that you stand up and play, like David Lindley had played and all that, that I don't think has pedals, right? Right. And I I, I sit down and play it, but yeah. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. It's the lap steels. And that before the pedals came out, that's how they had steel guitars. And, and if you if you look back, you know, you've probably seen pictures of some of these guys would have three and four necks. Oh, right. Yeah. And that was for different tunings. Right. But what happened in, the, in um, you know, there was some steel players around. Alvino Ray had a Gibson electro harp or something. And there were some guys experimenting, but... What happened is Bud Isaacs played on a Webb Pierce record called Slowly uh, back in the 50s. And it basically bought the one chord up the pedal, bent the strings from the one chord up to the four chord. Oh, okay. And so all the steel players started freaking out over like, that How did sound. he do that? So it was so funny. Guys like Weldon Myrick, who, who's the late, great Weldon Myrick, and... Uh, who's not around anymore, but he was down in Texas at the time. He went down to the auto parts store, I mean, down to the garage and drilled a hole in the body and ran a rod <laughs> down and hooked it on and he hooked a pedal on to be able to make, duh, make yeah. that change. And he carried shims of wood around with him to tune the change. He said, right. I'd get, depending on the dance floor, I'd put the wood in until it made, it pulled up. The the right. Wow. But then Shot Jackson was here in Nashville, and Shot Jackson started was a machinist and a guitar builder, and Shot guitar repairman. And Shot started doing modifications, yeah. and then Buddy Emmons came to town, and he hooked up with Shot Jackson. They started the Showbud steel guitar thing, mm -hmm. and then Emmons Emmons created the whole 
Yeah, really I heard came that, up I had heard from tube. our steel player Brad Corbin that uh, that Buddy Emmons was kind of like the guy that sort of yeah, took steel to a whole. As you can see, I have a yeah. sign picture up there from wow. Him. It um, says the Big E Buddy Emmons from the Big E Fair. Yeah, we played but, the well, Big actually e it wasn't the Big E Fair. That was oh. that's the Big E. That's the, what the, they called him, the Big E. Oh, the Big E. Okay, I thought because there's a Big E Fair. In oh, I played that Big E Fair yeah, right. a bunch of times myself. Uh, but um, the Big yeah. E. It was just, and I was so lucky when I moved here, all the legends were here. They were still alive. Yeah. So I got to go over to Hal Ruggs' house, Buddy Emmons' house, Lloyd Green's house, Weldon's house, Larry Sasser, all these guys. And I started, you know, what happened is uh, the other thing that happened, I can tell you everything that led me to every situation that's happened, but... I was doing laundry one night, 10 o'clock at night. There's this all-night laundromat over on Belmont, and there was this lanky hippie chick over there sitting on the sitting on the dryer, and we started talking, and she said, I said, what do you do? She said, I'm a singer. And I said, she said, what do you do? I said, well, I play steel guitar. And she said, who have you played with? And I told her Ricky Skaggs. And she said, man, I love those records. And everybody knew that Ricky used his road band yeah. records. She said, if I ever get a record deal, I'm going to call you. And her name was Kathy Matea. Is that right? Wow. Yeah, and she got a record deal. And Alan Reynolds called me up and said, hey, Bruce, uh, it's Alan Reynolds. Uh, I would like you to come in and overdub on one of Kathy's songs. And it was a song called 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And it became a hit record. And... About the other time, I'd met this guy named T. Graham Brown and Bruce Birch, and we started writing a little bit, and I wrote a song with him called uh, The Last Resort, and then I I'd played wow. on a session with Bill Lloyd and Radney Foster, and we cut a song called Crazy Over You. So everything started happening at the same time. From that one meeting with Kathy Matea, right? Y well, yeah, I mean, that, that didn't, that didn't lead to T. Graham, but that the Kathy Matea thing, what happened is Alan Reynolds was the producer, and Alan called me up a year or two later and said, hey, man, I'm cutting this guy named Garth Brooks. You want to come play? And the first song I overdubbed on was Much Too Young to Be This Dang Old. Wow. And then there's a guy named Don Cook, who you know. Yeah. Uh -huh. And Don Cook was, I by this time, the T. Graham Brown song I'd written had come out as a single, and I realized I could quit Foster and Lloyd uh, and stay home and wait for the phone to ring. So, because I wanted to play sessions, so I'd get one call a week, two calls a week, but I'd do demos, I'd do anything. And Don Cook had this damn studio in his basement, and I had to drag all my shit all the way around <laughs> and go in there, and he was a terrible engineer. Oh, yeah. And he had one of those... Uh, Akai 12 tracks. You remember okay, those? I do, yeah. I remember that. But I I would go in and I would overdub his stuff and he called me up one day and he said, hey, Bruce, uh, I'm thinking of cutting some sides on Kicks Brooks. You want to play? And we set up at the Tree Demo Studio with a young... I remember that place. We, yeah, we've cut down there before. With an old with an old engineer, a young engineer named Mike Bradley who was a, the right. demo engineer and it was an old MCA board and a... Uh, MCI board and MCI tape machine and in walks Ronnie Dunn and Tim DeWaugh and Scott Hendricks and they said boys we're going to try this as a duo and somebody said well what are we going to cut and Ronnie pulled out a, a cassette out of his pocket and had Boot Scoot Boogie and Neon Moon on it <laughs> oh, damn. so the rest was history and then I got to play on on you so on Boot Scoot and Boogie that's you going yeah. Yeah. wow man
That was that was my first lap steel thing because I was a huge David Lindley fan. Lap steel, yeah. So there is there is a different kind of rock sound to a lap steel as opposed to like a pedal steel. It sounds more rocked out, like it's well, more distorted. Well, if you do it as a rocked out yeah. thing. I mean, I always played overdrive because I long before I really you know I knew about Rusty Young and Sneaky Pete, you know the L.A. guys, but I didn't know about um, any of the Nashville guys. But I knew about David Lindley, and he was yeah. playing with Jackson Brown. Wow, yeah. And I was just, I was a huge fan. I mean, running on empty, all that stuff. So. Yeah, man, the steel on that thing is in your face, man. I just always loved his tone on that thing and just that clarity. Yeah, he it's just amazing. died. He just died last month. I heard about that, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he was he was brilliant. But that was that's the kind of laugh steel I like. I mean, guys like Chris Scruggs are a master of the clean lap steel, which is yeah. the old, like you hear in the old Hank Williams songs. And, yeah. You know, old Hank Snow and all that, but it's because uh... I know news. You played that lap steel. I know. Right? I was just going to say. I totally. Yeah, I remember because I, I can almost hear the the same sound from Boots Good and Boogie in into No News, where you go near 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 just before the chorus. Yeah, I had I had three licks. <laughs> <laughs> I had about three or four licks, and you know that's that's one of the things that's interesting about you know about being a session player you know you you sort of you figure out how to use what you know yeah right because you can't you can't go into a session and improvise yeah right oh i I have an idea for a lick i don't know if i can if it's mastered yet but let me try yeah right you you don't get a call back you you, you just uh, time is money you know yeah and I, i think what i've learned from doing this podcast and from my own personal experiences is that it's it's so important what you don't play, you know? Yeah. Isn't that weird? You think like you got all these chops and you got all this training and you got all this experience. It's what you'd leave out that, that seems to really, you know, be so important, you know? What did I, I, I read some quote the other day. I wish I'd, 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 and I've read it before, but it was one of the great um, session players here in town and, you know, one of the legendary guys. And he said, well, you come to town, you take what you know, and you cut it in half, and then you get, then you cut it in half again, and then yeah. you, you, you know, and it's I mean, so it was, true. Yeah, that's always been hard for me. I'm still, I still work on that. Um, you know, because there's, it's being able to play that, that one lick or that one drum fill. You know, like you know, drummers, yeah, man. Right. You know the great. Great drummers will sit there, man, and they're just solid, and you don't even know they're there. And then they do one little fill or something that takes you into the bridge or whatever. And if it wasn't there, that record would never have been that hit. Right, that's true. Yeah. And it's the same thing with you know, you know, a lot of licks. The way just you know how how to get the glue together to to do the transitions or or you know like. You remember Rob Hajakis, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I've had him yeah. on the podcast before. Yeah, I mean Rob, I think I think he wrote more hooks than any fiddle player in yeah. history. I mean, I remember he, when he played with us, he was always kind of the idea guy. He was like, "What if we, you know, do?" And he would play a little lick, like a little signature thing on his fiddle, and be like, "Oh, okay, yeah, that, that could be the thing," you know. And then you'd hear that signature thing, and you knew immediately what song it was. But Rob and I would sit out in the parking lot after sessions and talk about stress points in songs, you know, and, and where do you hand off 
your sound to another sound and, and yeah. where do you back off and where do you build dynamically and you know we really you know it was all conceptual but i yeah. mean we were we were always aware about of that in the record and it's the nuance of uh of knowing that that song is getting ready to to soar in this point so maybe right there maybe you just need one little steel slide that yeah. slides from that one to the four and it's not written i mean none of that no. that, that chart that a lot of people don't know they, they hear a part on the radio and they think that someone wrote that those music notes out or something like that and the 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 numbers chart in nashville is so basic that everybody reads it's it's open to interpretation pretty much and so it's up to you guys you to, know why that came about yeah, because if they wanted to change a key, right? If yeah. a singer said, "Let's drop this," key, you didn't have to go back in and rewrite the whole every single note and all that. And yeah, well, you know, L.A. didn't. I mean, Nashville didn't have the budgets that L.A. happened back then. L.A. had copyists and, right, and arrangers yeah. and everything. So basically, the, the players would go in back, you know, in the '60s in L.A. The Wrecking Crew and all those guys, and then. They want to change the key. They could just sit around and wait for the. They sit and smoke a cigarette out back while they're yeah. waiting for the key to the, but, to rewrite everything. But people don't realize that in the <laughs> in the early seventies, late sixties, early seventies, the average budget for an RCA country record was five thousand dollars. Wow! And country music was the redheaded stepchild of the big big labels back then. Yeah. And so the band, the they'd have to go in. They'd have four sessions to do the records, three sessions to cut the tracks and one session for sweetening. And and I learned a lot of this from Lloyd Green because I've talking yeah. to talking to him a lot, um, which we may, I, I should call him and see if he'd be interested in talking to you because he's, oh, that'd be he's, great. it's amazing because he was one of the original A-Team guys. But um, I asked him one time, I said, God, you guys never made mistakes. He said, oh yeah, we made mistakes. I said, so what'd you do? You had to, you, you, how did you have time to recut the song? He said, well, if we screwed up the bridge, we'd just recut the bridge. And then the um, engineer would take a razor blade and cut it in. Right. Because yeah. they only had three tracks. <laughs> they only had three tracks until like 1968 or something. And yeah. then, they, then, then they went up to eight tracks, which was crazy. You know, all you know, of a sudden. Paul Lyme was telling me about uh, this technique they had for cutting where it was, they w wouldn't cut the tape in a straight line they would cut it in kind of like a stair step shape interesting yeah and he said so that when it rolled across the head it didn't just go blip like that you know it was kind of like sort of crossfaded a little oh, wow. you know but they had this kind of i forget what he called it it was like a stair step or a, or a i can't remember the name of it but uh but they would cut they, if you a good tape editor could knew how to take a razor blade and cut in this kind of pattern where it would match up you know and and it would, but it wouldn't just a straight cut across. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, years back, Kyle, the great producer Kyle Lenning, was a keynote speaker at this leadership music thing I was at, and uh, Pro Tools was just starting to get good. You know, they were finally figuring out the latency and everything. It's probably two thousand. Was this when it was uh, still a single track or a, a stereo thing? Because I remember Pro Tools started out as like just a, a mastering thing. Like you just like I don't, the final I don't song. And then they started with multi-track. No, this was multi-track. This yeah. is, I had already worked with Mutt Lang in the 90s, but this was in the early 2000s. And somebody said, do you miss tape? And Kyle said, no, I don't want to go back. He said, the only thing I don't like about Pro Tools is it's taken the decision making out of making records. Okay. Because... Yeah. You know, back in the day, man, you're on a piece of tape and somebody goes, that's it. 
you know they right. they did they can't say there well you know man you, yeah. you know when we were when we were working on your record and stuff you know um you know i know brent played on some of it and yeah. uh and 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 uh um michael of course yeah. michael Britt, and but I don't know if we'd gotten the 48 track yet or if we were still on 24, but I remember working back then, Brent Mason, for instance, would play a burning solo. And then he'd go, man, let me just try it one more time. And producer would be in there going, oh my God, we don't have another track. Should we yeah. do it? Should we not? Okay, give him yeah. a shot. And there'd be times when we'd go, oh man, I wish we'd kept that. Yeah. So when we went to the Sony 848 track, the Sony 48 digital, we had all those tracks, which gave us some opportunities to you know do a couple things but then when we went to infinite tracks on pro tools you suddenly had a whole way of record making where producers weren't sitting there going hey man that's really good why don't you maybe take that solo and why don't you build it here they're going hey give me about five playlists and i'll figure it out later or trying to 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 uh to punch it in like you would sit there and worry about punching let me just punch this one part and of course they still do that but then of course you just do a whole nother track well now it's easy to yeah. punch on pro tools though too i mean yeah. it's just so easy just to you know i mean it's it's flawless i mean i've got a system here at the house and and it's just wonderful people send me tracks and and i can I'm good at the you suck button. I, 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 they <laughs> they suck. have it on there because I'll, I'll spend a lot more time overdubbing here at the house than I do in a studio because you don't have an engineer or producer going, hey, it's pretty good. But yeah, no, it's um, we're still making we're still getting in the room with groups of people and making yeah. records. It's probably the only about the only town left in the world that does yeah. that. You know, Paul Lyme was saying that he feels like that when, when we were making those records back then that was like the golden age of it recording was, where it was and he said he still enjoys it's getting less and less but he still enjoys this the the room full of guys gals whatever room full of musicians you you you, you get your heads together and you play it all at the same time there's just a magic there well that's how that's how you get the communication that's how the moments happen i mean you know and having the artist there you know i mean the where, where the artist is sitting there and he's he's singing better on each take or whatever he or she and and you know you're getting inspired by all of it and you know and then you got a room and you know what i loved about that band when we did your first record that yeah. don cook band was that we all they were all good people yeah, I mean, Brent Mason was probably one of the, arguably one of the best guitar players in town, and still to this day, probably one of the best guitar players you know that ever yeah. came to this town. And he was the kindest, most benevolent musician. I mean, I can't tell you how many times he'd go, "Hey, man, I think you ought to feel there. I think steel would sound better. I think Phil will sound better." Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. uh, I think Vince Gill said something the other day that that made a lot of sense. He said. The session business is the only true democracy. Yeah, that's around because mean, yeah. because we're we're all just trying to serve the song, right? And a great studio band and great session players aren't sitting. They there leave going, their ego at the door for sure. Yeah, they're going. I'm not. I'm not going to try to worry. You know. I'm. Hopefully, I play a hit lick, but it's not about me. Yeah. It's about making that band sound good or making that artist sound good, that singer sound good. And, and Do you think that um, 
you know, because all these session guys, a lot of them, you know, about 99% of them are super sweet guys. They're super, super cool people. And do you think that maybe the fact that you guys are such kind-hearted people that that sort of folds itself into the sound and the music? I mean, because if you were kind of a jerk, it might come across in your music a little bit. You know, like you said, you, you know when to lay out, you know when to let somebody else, you know, to, to, like you're listening the whole time. Do you think that you're... Your kind-heartedness kind of transfers itself into the musical. I don't know. I've 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 had a history of being a jerk, and I and and I heard a couple records that I played when I was a jerk. They sounded pretty good, but it's okay. uh, Uh, No, I mean no, no, that's cool. I I just you know, I think people's everybody's got their own kind of passion, you know, on music. But I you know yeah, yeah, your personality comes out, your emotion comes out, Um, and I think it's a you know. That's funny you brought that up because I mean I mean I just uh, you know I quit drinking about you know a little over a year ago. Awesome. And um, it's been a real interesting thing as as my as I get more clarity you know I am able to reflect and look back a lot more you know and uh, I just sit there and I think God the sessions I walked into when I was hungover. And I was irritated, and the headphone mix sounded like ass, and I would, you know, just sort of snap at the engineer or something or whatever, you know, and I'm going, you know. But we still got it done. I'm I'm, I'm glad I, I managed to have a career in spite of my stuff. But yeah. it's it's... The session business is a lot of pressure mm-hmm. because... There's always the new guy. Right, yeah. And there's always the search for the new sound. Right. And there's always that thing of being able to try to come up with a part. And back, you know, back when, you know, when we were cutting your records and stuff, there, there, people were still buying records. Yeah, right. So there's so much money coming in, there was a demo business going on. So you could, you could be, you know, a B-level player, like, you know, which I considered myself at you know, I was like, you know, I wasn't Paul Franklin or Sonny Garrish or anything like that, but I was, you know, I could play in tune and I could play in time. You could work, you know, seven or eight demo sessions a week and make a living and learn your craft. Right. That doesn't exist now, you know, because nobody buys records. So these publishers don't have any money to sign writers and do yeah. demo sessions. Wow. Um yeah, it has certainly that, changed. I mean, because like back when you sold CDs and records and things like that, and now they're just hoping to get a, a, a couple hundred thousand streams, you know? Yeah. It's pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, well, you guys, thank, thankfully for Lone Star, you know, you have a pedigree and you can go out and tour on that. But I mean, but to be a a songwriter and make a living as a songwriter in this day and age, you know, you better be in the right camp because you know back in the 90s you know i had a bunch of cuts as a writer i never had any hits but everybody sold a million records yeah right yeah. you know country People music bought records country music was huge and you know and and that all trick that was all trickle down you know and now nobody buys records and the streaming companies don't pay unless you own the masters. Right. And I think 
we'll see some changes. I think the European Union is getting ready to go after the streaming companies big time. Yeah. So you've got to start paying creators. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't, I don't think most people don't realize that. Um, Musicians and artists don't get paid for songs that are paid on the radio. Right. And now, only writers. But now, writers don't make any money from streams. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's such, so Everything's sad. changing so fast, you know. It's, it's hard to keep up with it. Yeah, well... To figure out how to make a living and how to survive. Hopefully they'll figure it out, but I mean, it's... But the record companies are making more money than they've ever made. Yeah, right. It's because true. what happens is Spotify goes to to Sony and says, hey man, I want to use your catalog for a year. Here's $75 million. And they go to Warner Brothers and give them, you know, millions of dollars. And so all the labels are getting all this licensing money. Yeah. You know, but it's not trickling down to the artist or the writers or anybody else. You know, yeah. imagine that. The record company's not imagine taking that. care of uh, the artist. <laughs> Somehow it seems to work out for them. But, uh, you know, for us, we're just glad that we can still put butts in seats. You know, we can get out there and play shows based on songs that we've had, you know, 20 years ago. It's pretty amazing that yeah. people are coming out and enjoying that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the, the good thing about music. I mean, people still want to go hear it. Um, I think we're doing a show with you. I just... I played with a band called McBride and the Ride back in the 90s. I didn't. Pl yeah. I only toured with them for a couple of weeks. I helped them out, but I played on a couple of their big records, but we've been friends ever since. Who was the drummer for them? I remember him. He Billy Thomas. He played with he's, Vince he's, Gill or something. He's in Vince's he? band. Yeah. He's a great singer. He's a yeah. great writer. He played with uh, Mac Davis oh, right. in L.A. He, um, and then um, he's been with Vince for I saw him decades. play with Pam Tillis one time or something. Oh, he's like played with everybody. Billy, he's, Billy Thomas is Billy Thomas is just an amazing man. He's a incredible singer, incredible drummer, um, and he's just he's like all of us, man. He's yeah. he's he's working, but we're all like. I love the fact that I'm not the oldest guy in the band anymore. <laughs> Billy's a few months older than me, but I, I'd be 69 this year. And then wow. Terry McBride is, of course, McBride and the Ride. Terry wrote a bunch of big hits for Brooks yeah. and Dunn and a bunch of other people, and he's singing. And then Ray Herndon, who was the guitar player uh, with Lyle Lovett for years and years, he's playing. And we just have fun, man. But we're I, I, I saw in the books that we're doing a gig together somewhere, so I can't wait for that. I'm going to go over early, if I can, and, and catch you guys. And stand side stage and watch oh, you guys. We'll have fun. We'll hang out. It's, wow. I, think, I don't know if we're doing a casino. But, yeah, man, I mean, it's just interesting to be, you know, I've, I feel good, man. I mean, I feel like I'm playing better now than I've than I've played in a long time, yeah. you know. Um, and I'm still doing some records. I'm playing on some new, there's some new artists that are that are out that I'm on. Yeah, you have records. a setup here at home. You don't even have to really go into the studio anymore. People send you songs, I guess. Yeah. The, most of the song is kind of done and yeah, just, just adding I'm, flavor to it. Yeah, I'm doing it. They, you know, send me a track and I'll put the steel on it and I do stuff for people all over the world. But um, I'm having a good time now because I was lucky enough um in the 90s, you know, to write some songs. And, and back then, um, we had a really, really strong uh, musicians' union situation where all the publishers paid through the union mm -hmm. and they paid pension and they paid Social Security. 
you know, everything back then was all done W two income, all the labels and yeah. everything. And since they've all become corporate, you know, most of the stuff is ten ninety nine these days, which is really a drag. But I was lucky enough to work back then, so yeah. you know, you know, I'm quasi retired. You know, I mean, yeah. I get Social Security now, Medic Medicare, and you're just doing it for fun, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you still have that musician's ego where you want to, you know, I want to play him one more hit record. Yeah, right. Know, or, uh, so what was the last um, hit song that you played on that you can remember? You played on so many, I don't know if you can even remember. Oh, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm recently. On, I'm on some cool artists right now. I don't know what's, hits are hard to figure out what's a hit now because there's all these different charts, but there's a there's an artist named um, Drake Milligan. I'm, mm. I'm playing on on his record and there's a, a this great new artist named Mackenzie Carpenter I'm doing her record um it's a lot of indie artists man their they're stuff's getting out there um I don't know um Hannah Dasher I think is really cool she's uh you know she's out there touring everywhere she's you know like a cross between Merle Haggard and Dolly Parton and Hank Jr. and everything. Wow. She plays slide guitar and guitar, and she That's writes awesome. all these killer songs. I'm, That's awesome that it's kind of going back to the old old style a little bit. You know, it seems like I'm a lot of the stuff I'm cutting is starting to feel like '90s country. All I think right. people are getting real tired of um, what we uh, jokingly refer to as hip hop. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. which was basically you know there was a period of time for a long time where all these country acts were using you know kind of hip-hop rhyme schemes and Mm -hmm. rhythmic forms the beats were kind of all the same and the producers were you know in there creating all this stuff on the computer and everything else Mm -hmm. um and it worked for a while i mean it's pop music but when you all of a sudden started seeing people like you know chris stapleton and sierra farrell and now God, Billy Strings just sold out two nights at the Bridgestone playing bluegrass. There's an audience out there that wants to hear melody and they want to hear real instruments and they want to hear right. They want to hear playing again. And if you recall back back when we were making your records in the '90s stuff, there were solos. Yeah, there were solos. There were intros. There were instrumental intros. You know steel guitars and fiddles yeah. and dobros and just i mean everything had character and you could tell the 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 audience the different yeah. artists you know um who knows man yeah. i mean you know uh it's happened you know i mean when the beatles came out you know it was it was you know bobby vinton and pat boone and all these guys were the big artists and then all of a sudden here come the beatles with these incredible melodies and these you know amazing lyrics and and singing and you know they played their own instruments and then you know then you had the you know you you had the era of cream and zeppelin and and blood sweat and tears and chicago all these different the eagles Mm -hmm. jackson brown joni mitchell all these different artists and you know and they each changed it just a little bit i think you know until it sort of just changes the whole in, in, a, in a whole like two decade period, you know, so that's not even the same music anymore. But we had artist driven, you know, music. We artists were, there were a lot of artists that were, and even in country music for, you know, because you look, you look at the people who are still doing it. Yeah. 
Tim McGraw, Reba McIntyre, Garth Brooks, George Strait, all these people, they're still selling huge numbers. Yeah. And they haven't had a song on the radio. Yeah. It's strange. In forever. I find that a lot of these audiences, a lot of radio and things like that, they, they're they not interested in hearing new music from these old artists. They kind of just want to hear the old thing, you know? You think it would be, they would just be chomping at the bit to get a new Lone Star song or a new, uh, you know, Alabama song or something like that. But it seems like they just are stuck on the old songs, what they prefer, the hits that you had back in the past. And that's kind of what they want to hear. You know? Well, so people are re-recording. You know, we just went in and re-recorded all of our number one songs. Yeah, well, we you did that because you—that way you'd own the license for it. Exactly, you'd own the yeah. master for it. And we yeah. wanted to give the fans a little bit something too. You know, a little bit newer technology because you sure. know in the '90s things sounded different. They sounded. They sounded great, but they sounded a little thinner. Now things are a little thicker and fatter, you know. So we went in with new recording technologies and did like Amazed and No News and stuff like that. Yeah. But I mean, I remember we had to do that with, when I produced that Haggard tribute album back in the 90s. Uh, I remember Donna Hilly at Tree ended up, you know, getting Merle and taking him into the studio and re recording all his hits because she ended up buying the publishing. And that was so that she could also do the licensing on the masters and, and taylor swift just did the same yeah thing. right she re recorded all her stuff because and now she's got but yeah i mean when you get you know it gets crazy when your people want stuff for tv and they want all that but but the other side of the coin what you were saying a really great song lasts a lifetime right yeah amazed is going to last a lifetime I'm not going to um, mention other songs that we've had in in, in country music over yeah. the past decade, but mm -hmm. I will say that some of these songs that were big hits for five minutes, nobody is even can even remember. Yeah, right. But they're going to remember Neon Moon. Yeah, they're going to remember Mama Try by Merle Haggard. Yeah, you know, they're remembering Michelle by the Beatles. I mean, they remember. Uh, you know, I mean. I, I got to I've got to meet um, well I've met him before but I've actually got to have a really good conversation with Tim McGraw a while back yeah. and we started talking and it was about songs and what Faith Hill and Trisha Yearwood and George Strait and Frank Sinatra and Linda Ronstadt and Reba you know and Kenny Chesney all had in common they didn't record their own songs. Yeah, right. They sat there and they looked for the best songs that they could interpret and the best songs they could record. Yeah. And because of that, they have a career. Yeah. They've had right. a career. They have a legacy. You know, Linda Ronstadt, I'm sure she wrote something, mm -hmm. but Bonnie Raitt, Bonnie Raitt writes and she finally got a Grammy for something she wrote. But, but all these artists were smart enough to... To go, look, yeah, sure, I could try to write this song and get part of the publishing and make yeah. instant money, or I could sit there and take this magnificent piece of work that this genius songwriter wrote, and I could record it yeah. and have a career that I can work for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's smart. And nowadays... You know, there's just because of the lack of money, the way everything is, all all these artists and all these management companies and everybody, they all 
You know, they all yeah. want a piece of it. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, and every artist has to write now. Yeah, or know. at least co-write, you know. A co-write. So they got this thing now where the artist just sits in the room and contributes very little. You know, well, we're not that supposed happen. to tell those stories. Oh, okay. Kids. Well, okay. So forget that. I'll edit that out. Not. You know, <laughs> but it's, uh, in the other part of the equation is, you know, they deregulated radio in 96. And so basically, you know, there's very few corporations that own all the radio in this country, you know, yeah. and you remember back when you guys started, they had all night radio. Yeah. Right. So you could get on the phone and call that guy up and say, man, thank in Colorado Springs and say, thanks for playing our record. And you could call him up in a few a few nights later, and he's still going to answer the phone because nobody's calling him at two yeah. in the morning and everything. And you you develop a relationship, you know. Yeah, back when radio was actually live, like yeah. you could actually call someone up and request yeah. a song and play it. And 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 they start going, man, I I really like Keach from Lone Star, man. I, I yeah, Keach is good, uh, you know. Dean, you know, okay, yeah, get, Dean, you know, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, but uh, but I like Keach enough that I think I want to play their record again. I mean, you know, you know how we yeah. all we all mm-hmm. saw that. And nowadays, that doesn't exist. There's no all night. And it's back then, or something. Yeah. Back then, there used to be all these small little radio stations. And so you could get a, you could start a fire in Sheboygan that might head over to Battle Creek. And, you know, um, you know, you didn't have to spend millions on promotion. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, these big corporations might have two or three gatekeepers. Yeah. Right. Plus when they consolidated, you know, when they moved, when they changed the law, allowing a corporation to have as many radio stations as mm-hmm. in a market as they wanted, yeah. it used to be illegal. You could only have one in a market. I remember that. Yeah, that was to protect free speech and democracy. But um, you know, all of a sudden, Clear Channel moves everything into one building, and they start firing people. And these senior guys come in; they don't know anything about country music. You know. Yeah. They're just looking at dollar signs and what you know, advertising. They, and- their their thought about country music is more, you know, maybe they feeling is more loops and you know, you know, whatever. Whereas you know, some of these old DJs, man, they really they knew songs. They, they knew, knew songs. when the playing yeah. was happening. Mm-hmm. But yeah. anyway, I, I don't I don't want to sound like an old guy because I <laughs> I I'm always encouraged. The stuff I'm cutting, a lot of the stuff I'm cutting now is really melodic and it's really it's cool it's good writing and it's it's hearkening back to the good years when you know the singer songwriters and the yeah you know can you say who your favorite drummer is you won't hurt him i don't think you'd hurt anybody's feelings God, man. playing in sessions like do you have a favorite drummer that you uh, remember playing with is it lonnie could it be paul i mean i don't think you hurt anybody's feelings because everybody I, I you know i feel incredibly fortunate to have played with the people I've played with. I mean, I can sit there and and talk about how different drummers feel, but I probably made more records with Lonnie in a, in a period of time. Right. And, you know, I always loved Lonnie's playing because for the kind of music we were doing, yeah. you know, I mean, Lonnie it was Wilson. obviously very stylistic. Yeah, Lonnie yeah. Wilson. But um, he was a singer. Of course, yeah. And a writer, too. And a writer. Yeah. And he played the song. And, you know, as you sort know, of the song, right? as you know, the drummers 
job in Nashville in sessions is so important because you know they you come in and they, they play you the demo or they play you the guitar vocal that mm -hmm. drummer's got to sit there and go okay this is the roadmap of this song right. what does this need to be this is this is where the, the the roads are this is where the exit ramps are these are where the bridges are I've got to go in down there and lay that down right the like first I've been time. playing it all my career yeah uh, that's that's really the strange part about playing drums in the studio was you got to play it so polished and creatively you got to know where you are in the song and exactly you, gotta, you know yeah yeah and I mean so the drummers have have a hard job but I mean god man that's you know I got to work with Eddie Bears who was who was amazing I got to play with London once or twice uh played with Larry Paul. London yeah. yeah I played with Paul a bunch played with you um play you know there's some great drummers and I mean there's a bunch of new guys man that are just they're all playing great yeah um I'm noticing the new generation of musicians, it's its really interesting because, um, you know, back when I was learning, and I don't know how it was with you, but back when I was learning, um, obviously we didn't have DVDs, we didn't have... Um, YouTube and all that. YouTube, we didn't have anything. You had to find somebody down the street who might know how to play a lick, and you took a record and you slowed it down to half speed and you learned it and you found somebody, you took lessons, if there's a cool guy to take lessons for now a young player can get online and find 10 different ways to play little wing by hendrix you know and yeah. if he wants to sit in his room and practice eight hours a day yeah he can become an amazing player same with drums i mean yeah. you know like you know the the rosanna beat mm -hmm. you know the it's on youtube jeff picaro shows yeah. you how shows he you played how to do it. it yeah you know so everything is out there what's not out there is you know the club work that used to be around where you could you know where i grew up you could play seven nights a week yeah, if you want craft just, and get just that go experience. around you know so guys you know it's um i don't know man it's it's there's so many brilliant musicians this you you've how long you've lived here now uh, uh 30 years almost yeah, so this next year will be thirty years. You walk around every corner, and there's a great musician. There's a kid that's playing now. Um, he's an adult, but I call him a kid. He's in his mid thirties. His name's Jordan Pearlson. Mm -hmm. He's playing with Guthrie Trap. Playing drums or yeah, or he plays drums, yeah, drums, and he plays every Monday night down at the Underdog, which is half you know half a mile down the street from here. And I'll go down there sometimes just to watch him. Because he came, he came out of, um, I think he's a Berkeley grad, but he played the New York jazz scene, and he came here. But he's got so much control of his drums and little percussive things he does. Little, you know, he's got a little tiny hi hat that he mm -hmm. plays for just a certain sound. And he'll sometimes be playing and pull out that guru kind of thing, and he'll yeah. be hitting a snare and playing a guru with his right hand. And um, wow. It's just wonderful to see, and, but if he's got to sit there and just play it straight, yeah, he plays it straight. You know, Shannon Forrest. Yeah, you know, I met Shannon Forrest when he was nineteen. You know, eighteen or nineteen. You know, yeah. uh, he grew up in it. I mean, yeah. he's a great engineer, and uh, you know, 
you got to play in Toto for years. I yeah. mean, um, you know, he just, some of those guys know stuff. Yeah. You know, because they get to play with guys like you. I oh, mean, they've no, learned I mean, their craft from, by playing with the best. Well, I don't, I appreciate it. That's very kind, but I, I'd say it's the other way around. But I mean, it's just, um, I'm just amazed at the caliber of musicians in this town. Yeah. But there's also, you know, it's, you have to check yourself, you know, and not, yeah. um, not get too depressed about it because it's like you sit there and you go, <laughs> Oh man, that guy's got steel licks that I never even thought of. And then you're going, but it's okay because yeah. it's Nashville. It's not like yeah. you know. Uh, Do you remember? Uh, I know we talked about this one time uh, years ago. That there was a we used to watch this in the in the '90s. We used to sit and watch because we got a cassette video cassette tape of the Ricky Skaggs gig on Austin city limits where Ray Flack was playing. Yeah. And we weren't so taken with Ray Flack's playing as we were you watching him and being the look on your face on that, on that taping, because you can see you kind of behind him a little bit, just completely blown away. Like this, the look on your face is like, how is he doing that? (laughs) Well, there was a little of that. There was a lot of that. I mean, there were nights that Ray, would play stuff and you just go where did that come from right um but the other part is show business man when you're up there with ricky skaggs band it was uh, um we all got to solo all yeah. the time and so you know and you're on camera and you got to be you know and i was you know trying to figure out yeah you know but for a band to be for a band to be together and you've probably heard each other play everything but for you someone to be so wrapped up into what one of the bandmates was doing was just so cool well, to see how good. how I just saw that today I saw Statesboro Blues video um when the Almond Brothers had Derek Trucks and uh um uh, oh my god my brain's gone um Warren Haynes yeah playing guitar and Derek was taking a solo, and Warren's just sitting there playing rhythm, just looking at Derek and going, just smiling, going <laughs> like this. Derek. And then Warren turned around and played a brilliant solo, and O'Teal Burbridge is over there just grooving and watching him. I mean, wow. you know, I am so thankful that music still affects me emotionally yeah. and physically. I can still get goosebumps when I see somebody or hear something. And you don't know why. You ever notice that? Yeah. Sometimes you'll be watching somebody and they'll play one note and all of a sudden you get a shiver through your body. Yeah. You know, I mean, to me, if I could be that kind of player, I'd be, yeah. <laughs> I'd say I've succeeded. And if it was any other note, it wouldn't be the same feeling, right? Uh-uh. It's something human that we've had. I think uh, um, Rupert Neve kind of put it a certain way. He said there's certain sounds that's like he calls it the God sound. He's a very religious man, you know, Rupert Neve from Neve, Neve yeah. uh, boards, studio boards. And he said that, the, that he has a philosophy about sound and about frequencies and about tones, that there's certain ones that humans, that we humans listen to that affect us emotionally. Yeah. But yeah, so, you know, a lot of times Rupert Neve would say that there was a certain frequency that, that was like a human that, that we would that we could respond to as a human that was like the God frequency, some, some almost like a religious thing. 
Oh, I've had many religious experiences with with music. I mean, I've been I've been so overwhelmed at times. Just that moment where it just takes you over, and you're going, "Wow!" Um, you know, it's that zone, and it really it really happened to me when I was singing in choir in high school. You know, and yeah. playing, you know, doing the Bach B minor Mass with the National Symphony with the 18 voice chamber choir, wow. and then all of a sudden the frequencies came through. Or like, um, I got really lucky. I used to be a, um, I used to represent recording musicians with this thing called the RMA, and um, I used to go to Washington and and you know, fight for recording rights and stuff, and also fighting my own union. You know the way they were treating recording musicians, and uh, I got invited to a session with James Newton Howard. Wow. Uh, at the studio where they did the Wizard of Oz, the old MGM studio, it's okay. now Sony studio, but he was recording an 80-piece orchestra for a um, Will Smith movie. Oh. And he was so kind. He just said, man, just make your... I was only going to stay for an hour, and I stayed for six. He said, wow. "He said, man, just make yourself at home. You can go hang out in the room, or you can hang out in here. And I'd go out, and I'd stand over by the cellos. Wow. And then I'd stand over by the brass and I'd do this thing and just this wave of sound coming in. It just physically takes you over and puts you somewhere else. Oh my you know? gosh, wow. You know, and it was, um, and I said we talked about that a little while ago. I'm glad I still get moved. I'll hear, sometimes I'll go out to a club and I'll hear, hear a singer hit a certain note. You it know. just sucks the oxygen out of the room, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I love those moments. There's a girl named Wendy Moten who, um, she's Vince Gill's background singer, and she just actually just did, uh, was on The Voice recently, but she's she's been around. I think she toured the world with Julio Iglesias back in the day, and she's wow. just one of the finest singers I've ever heard. And she does a little Monday night gig here in Nashville with a group called The Time Jumpers. I remember them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I've heard oh, of them. There's, yeah, you should go see them, man. Billy's playing drums for that, but Paul, right. the great Paul Franklin's playing steel. Larry Franklin's yeah. playing fiddle, and Joe Spivey and Kenny Sears and Jeff Taylor. They're amazing. I mean, you know, that would be an event to see that. Well, it's every Monday that. night. Yeah. They play. They start at eight o'clock and they're done at ten. But it's it's just they don't play anything written past night. 1960. I mean, it's wow, all—it's great. It's old big band, country swing kind of stuff. But the some of the best musicians in the world. But when Wendy sings, it's like it's breathtaking. Wow. She sings right in the middle of the note. She just her phrasing, just all that kind of stuff. And that's you know she got the gift. Yeah. You know, I always say that God. I always made a joke that God came down. He, he as musicians, you know, he tapped a few of us on the head and said. You've got it. No matter what you do, you're gonna. It's gonna be amazing. The rest of you guys are gonna have to work your asses <laughs> off. You know. Yeah, I think I was one of the ones that the the the, the second one you said. Oh, to work I, your I, ass I, off. I definitely, I definitely was, and I still am, man. I mean, it's it's. I'm practicing more than I've ever practiced. I mean, you know, I think I mentioned the other day that, and I, and I don't want to preach or anything, but um, I finally just quit my relationship with alcohol. That's great. You know, I mean, after, you know, I started drinking when I was, uh, when I was 15 years old. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, I had periods when I didn't drink and I wasn't one of those guys that got up in the morning and had a drink or anything yeah. like that. But 
when I partied, I partied. Yeah. And, you know, it took up a lot of time. And now that I don't feel like I have to stop at the Inglewood Lounge and have a drink yeah. or anything, um, I have all this extra time. And I, I'll come home sometimes and just just practice a roll for an yeah. hour with a metronome, wow. just real slow over and over again. And at 70 years old, I'm getting better. I'm able to do things I was never able to do. And it just pisses me off <laughs> that I didn't have this realization 40 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, that's the best advice I could ever give somebody who wants to really be serious as a musician. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe, you know, become a studio player, you know, or become a great artist, man, you know. Yeah. Drugs and alcohol really take up a lot of time. Yeah. You yeah. know. Definitely. And if you're going to be great, you know, I, always, I told somebody the other day, I said, you know, when I was with Ricky Skaggs, you know, um, arguably, Ricky's one of the best musicians I ever said. It used to irritate the heck out of me because couple of us would go out after the gig and we'd go party and you know the next morning we'd stay out late and we'd drink beer and carry on and then next morning you know you get up you're half hung over and everything you want to sleep ricky would sit in the back of that bus and practice all day wow. long dang you know people always used to say well he must have slowed the tape down on country boy i said no man after sound check <laughs> ricky would sit there in the dressing room and practice that dang intro lick for two hours yeah <laughs> you know and did this thing for three months and that's how you get good mm -hmm. you Absolutely. know you have to just do it you got to practice over and over and over and relentlessly and mm -hmm. time with a metronome because yeah. it's a muscle memory totally yeah you know paul franklin who who you know is the best steel player in the world you know of this generation and pro and in history he'll be he'll be one of the greatest you know vince told me this about paul he said paul would did because vince played with the time jumpers for a long time before mm -hmm. before he joined that road band he's in the eagles is that yeah some eagles yeah. or something like that yeah um <laughs> but um vince said that if paul screwed up a solo or something playing with the time jumpers he'd go home and practice for three hours until wow. he had it down. after the gig right? after the gig oh my god he said he'd do the same thing when when he's on tour with him and figure out what you know i mean wow. that's where greatness comes yeah and I, I i'm thankful that somehow i got by with a you know i was able to figure out how to plug in what i knew but yeah you know i've you know um, you know the drummer uh travis barker plays with blink 182 he's of that kind of like practice six hours a day sometimes eight hours a day I, i've i've just riveted at hearing this how physical that would be to practice drums for eight hours a day and sometimes like for days and days at a stretch that's travis barker and that's why he's such a great drummer is because like the the ricky skaggs thing just you put in so much time and muscle memory that you just your body is built to do that you're just going to do it great yeah i just wish i'd done it 40 years ago <laughs> Well, you know, I'd have been a virtuoso, and now the problem is, you get older and you get art, you get an arthritis. Right, your fingers you get, don't work the same. You know, it's all this stuff. But life is still beautiful, man. Well, it's always a pleasure listening to you play and talking to you, of course. No, oh, man, it's great to see you, man. A lot of good memories. Absolutely. Can't wait. We run into each other on the road, and hey, let's go make another hit record. That would be awesome. That'd man. be awesome. 
Awesome. Thank you, Keach. You betcha. Thank All you, right. Bruce Bouton, Keach Rainwater. We'll see you next time.